Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. My name is Stephanie, and uh, normally I would be recording this intro along with my good friend and podcast buddy, the other Stephanie, but it's the holidays and everything's kind of crazy right now, and um, we forgot to record the intro, so we're going to move on. Let me tell you a little bit about how this show works. First, I will tell you a little story about a crime that happened in Texas. Then we'll have a sit down with the other Stephanie, who is a real live lawyer, and have a chat with her about how that crime interacted with Texas law. Uh, quick disclaimer, this show is for entertainment, so nothing that is said here is intended to be legal advice of any kind. Also, chock full of adult content, so listener discretion is advised. All that being said, buckle up, my little Christmas buttercups, and let's get into it. y'all ever hear about the Santa Claus bank robbery? Let's go back in time, shall we? Back to December 23rd, 1927. It's two days before Christmas. And in the little town of Cisco, Texas, it's full-on holiday spirit. People are out in the streets, they're shopping, they're carrying packages. It looks like something out of a Norman Rockwell painting. Only there's no snow, because it's Texas, but there is a lot of freezing cold air and looming clouds in the sky threatening rain. And up and down Main Street, people are out and about, they're shouting holiday greetings to each other, kids are all over the place, because somebody has seen Santa Claus. There's a man coming down Main Street, wearing the classic Santa Claus outfit with the big old fake beard and the long red jacket with the, with the white woolly trim, going down the street with a flock of kids chasing after him, talking to him about what kind of presents they want, and every now and then Santa will pause and stroke his fake beard and thoughtfully consider the kind of gifts that these kids are asking about. They'll point into the windows of shops and say, that football right there, I want that football. And Santa would give a, a hearty ho 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 and tell him, I'm sure if, if Santa doesn't get it for you, then your mama or your daddy or somebody will get it for you because son, you look like a boy who could play football. And then maybe an extra ho 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 for good measure. And this heartwarming scene continues until Santa reaches the door of the First National Bank on Main Street. He tips his jolly Santa hat at the kids and steps inside the bank. Well, the kids follow him in because it's Santa. And Santa Claus now walks into the lobby of the bank. One of the cashiers looks up, sees him and smiles and says, Hello, Santa Claus. But Santa doesn't answer. Santa goes to the counter. The kids and a bunch of other folks come filing in from the street, following Santa into the bank. The cashier says again, Hello, Santa. But again, there's no answer. All of a sudden, three of the men who had just followed Santa into the bank draw guns. They point their guns at everybody in the bank, and they literally say, Stick them up, hands in the air. At first, folks thought it had to be a joke. In what world does Santa and a crowd of happy children and then men with guns all happen in the same place? But then, Santa pulls a gun too, and the reality of the situation comes crashing down. The mother of one of the little girls who had followed Santa into the bank grabs her daughter and runs across the lobby, ignoring the shouts from those men saying, stop, stop or I'll shoot. She busts out through a side door from the bank into the alley, runs down the alley screaming for anybody. She legs it across the street, dragging her daughter behind her to the police station, yelling for help, yelling for the police because the bank is being robbed by Santa Claus. 
1927 was a hell of a year. It wasn't quite the Great Depression yet, that doesn't kick off until 1929, so the Roaring 20s are still roaring, uh, and it is a golden age of crime. There are, in Texas at this time, three to four bank robberies a day. A day. The Texas Bankers Association got uh, tired of getting robbed all the time, so they publicly announced a $5,000 reward to anyone who killed a bank robber. Yeah. So an announcement like that is bound to cause a little confusion, so they followed up with another announcement to clarify. By $5,000 reward, they mean they would only be paying that if you killed the bank robber. You would get not one single penny for bringing anybody in alive. For perspective, uh, I ran a little uh, inflation calculation, and $5,000 in 1927 is the equivalent of about $74,000 today. So... People were taking them up on their offer. And it kind of got the attention of the Texas Rangers because there were rampant abuses. There were reports of people like hiring migrant workers and telling them to stand in front of a bank and then walking away, coming back and going, they're robbing the bank and then shooting those guys, killing them and collecting the reward. So the Texas Rangers start investigating and they're like, this is a terrible policy. So they approached the Texas Bankers Association and said, hey, could you maybe not offer a cash reward for people to kill other people? And the Bankers Association said, hey, could you maybe stop people from robbing our banks? And that was about as far as that conversation went. Basically, it was a really dangerous time to be a bank robber. You would think that if that was your particular career choice, you might be discouraged from continuing to pursue it. You'd think that. But if you did, then you wouldn't be an honest-to-God, real-live, dyed-in-the-wool career outlaw like Marshall Ratliff. Marshall Ratliff wasn't about to, to give up his chosen vocation of bank robbery just because of a little entire citizenry of a state being incentivized to kill him for it. No, no. So Marshall Ratliff was in jail in Wichita Falls for bank robbery. And while he was in jail, the guy who arrested him, G.E. Bedford, moved down to Cisco, Texas to become the chief of police there. So then Ratliff gets let out of prison on parole and he's got a choice to make. He can either give up his life of crime and live quietly and honestly for the rest of his days, or he can pursue his grudge against now chief of police Bedford and go rob the bank in Cisco. Well, we're talking about him on a podcast, so uh, three guesses which option he chose. Ratliff knows that in order to do this, he's going to need two things. He's going to need a crew and he's going to need a disguise because the police chief in Cisco damn well knows his face. So Ratliff reaches out and contacts Henry Helms and Robert Hill, a couple of old prison buddies, and a fourth guy who was going to be the safe cracker so that they could just use him to break into the vault at the bank. But that guy came down with the flu. Ratliff said they still needed a fourth guy, so Helms was like, hey, I know this guy, Louis Davis. He's never broken a law a day in his life, but he's got a whole bunch of kids and he needs the money. So Louis Davis joins the crew. So now it's Marshall Ratliff, Henry Helms, Robert Hill, and Louis Davis. And they have got a plan. First step, Marshall Ratliff borrows a Santa costume from his landlady. And the plan unfolds like this. Marshall, dressed as Santa, would go down Main Street in Cisco and attract crowds and distract everybody's attention so that the other three guys could pull the getaway car into the alley behind the bank. Then they would just sort of fall into the crowd that was following Marshall down the street and follow him into the bank, pull their guns, and boom, robbery commences. 
everything goes according to plan until that one lady grabs her kid and runs out the side door before anybody can stop her and starts screaming for the police. Now the guys know they're committed, they're going to be robbing this bank, and they have got to move. They're on a timetable. So... Hill and Davis start to cover the bank customers. Helms covers the door. Ratliff grabs a hold of the bank manager, drags him over to the vault, and orders him to open it. Then Ratliff pulls a literal potato sack from under his jolly suit and starts filling it from the now open vault. All told, he manages to pack in there about $12,000 in cash and $150,000 in securities, which is a not-so-small fortune. In modern money, that's $178,000 in cash and about $2.2 million in securities. If these guys can pull this off, they're going to be set for life. Meanwhile, outside, the lady from the bank has, has roused the town. The police are starting to mobilize. Police Chief Bedford has found the getaway car in the alley. So he posts himself at one end of the alley and he puts officers Carmichael and Reddy's at the other end of the alley. They are there to make sure these guys don't get away. At the same time, half the town of Cisco has gotten a hold of their guns and started converging on the bank. A, because there's going to be a reward if they manage to kill these guys, and B, because it's Texas. So Helms, looking out the plate glass window at the front of the bank, can see all of this activity outside. One of the police moves a little too close to the window, so Helms fires a shot through the glass. And that just kicks it off. All the bullets in the world are flying from the bank outside, from outside into the bank, totally with zero regard for the fact that there are innocent civilians inside that bank. At the end of the day, there was an estimated 200 bullet holes counted in the walls of that bank. Hill is shooting out through the windows. Davis is just trying to keep the crowd under control. Helms is stationed at the front door. He'll swing out, firing from a gun at each hand like he's Billy the Kid or something, and swings back inside. Ratliff, through all of this chaos, manages to rally his crew together. Here's the new plan. We got to get out of here. We've got the money. We're gonna, what we're going to do is take everybody in this bank and shove them out the side door into the alley so that they'll cause confusion and keep the cops from getting a clear shot. Awesome. So Ratliff, Helms, Hill, and Davis, they all shove everybody out into the alley. It's chaos out there. Got two cops at one end and the chief of police at the other end blocking any kind of exit. So Ratliff and Helms each grab a little girl. 12-year-old Laverne Comer, and 10-year-old Emma May Robertson. They grab up these girls and use them as human shields so the cops can't get a clear shot on them. It does not occur to Lewis Davis to grab a little girl and use her as a human shield so he gets hit in the chest. But still, all of the robbers manage to pile into the car with two little girls and a big bag full of money. And now they've just got to get out of the alley. And the bullets continue to fly. And the, the robbers have little girl shields. The cops don't. And Police Chief Bedford and Officer Carmichael are big, barrel-chested Texas cops, blocking the end of the alley with as much of their body as they can. They make excellent targets. Officer Carmichael is shot. Bedford takes five bullets to the chest. Officer Reddy's reaches down to try to help Officer Carmichael, but his partner yells at him, Don't help me. Go. Get them, because the bandits are getting away. They're starting to pull down the alley. They're going to get out to the street. So Reddy's leaves his partner and runs to the police station to grab a rifle and takes off after the getaway car on foot. Police Chief Bedford would die of his wounds before Christmas Day. Officer Carmichael would take another month to die. So now the bandits are out on the street. They've got a car full of money and, and two terrified little girls, and they are tear-assing out of town. While the citizens of Cisco aren't about to let them get away, they form up into a very heavily armed mob. They're hopping on horses, they're hopping into cars, and they're taking off after the getaway car. 
They catch up to Officer Reddy's on the street and pick him up. He hops up onto the sideboards of the car and rides along with them. And now a high-speed chase down icy, sleet-covered roads through West Texas fields is on. Ratliff starts pulling out ahead. He's feeling good about his chances, but then he realizes they're running out of gas. They forgot to fill the gas tank of the getaway car before they robbed the bank. So up ahead on the road, they see a little Oldsmobile putt-putt-putting along, and they pull up alongside the car and bump it so it has to pull over. Both cars come to a stop, and all these bandits pile out of the car, guns pointed at the driver of the car, who is a 14-year-old boy, and they're yelling at him, get out of the car, you get out of the car. So he does. He gets out and he takes off running across the pasture. So these four men, they grab a hold of the bag of money and the two little girls, and they shove them into the Oldsmobile. They get in and realize... They can't start the car because that kid who's running off across the field took the keys with him. Well, at this point, the mob is getting close. Bullets are starting to ping off of both of the cars. Davis is bleeding out from his chest, so they leave him. And they just pile back into the original getaway car with the two little girls and take off, barely escaping the mob. The mob converges on the Oldsmobile. They're frantically searching the car, hoping like hell that maybe those men had left those two little girls behind. But they didn't find them. All they found was Lewis Davis, a man who had never broken a law a day in his life, bleeding out and dying of his wounds. And they found the bag of money. Ratliff and his crew had left the money in the car. So the mob stood there and watched as the bandit's car sped away down the icy road with three wounded, frustrated, heavily armed men and two very frightened little girls inside. Well, a car with more bullet holes than gas in its tank can only get so far. Ratliff and his crew were forced to abandon the car, thankfully leaving the two little girls inside, a few miles outside of town, and continue their way on foot. Now, at this point, the manhunt is on. The Eastland County Sheriff's Department and the Texas Rangers have joined forces to turn out an honest-to-God posse. Dozens and dozens of men on horseback, in cars, on foot, scouring the landscape, looking under boulders, the bottoms of ravines, checking every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, henhouse, outhouse, or doghouse in West Texas, looking for these three men. Now, Ratliff, Helms, and Hill have each been shot, so they're all wounded. They're all wearing just their regular street clothes, though Ratliff has a little extra warmth because of the Santa costume. And they're out in the elements in a sleet storm trying to dodge the cops. So on Christmas morning, they steal a car. But they're cold, they're miserable, they've lost a lot of blood, and the roads are covered in ice and ain't nobody in Texas who knows how to drive on an icy road. So they only make it as far as Putnam before they skid off the road and crash that car. So they commandeer another car. This one's being driven by a young man named Carl Wiley, who's got his dad in the passenger seat. Now, their plan is to keep the driver this time because he can't run off with the keys if he's still driving the car. They kick Dad out of the car and start to climb in. But Dad's got a shotgun, and he fires at the car as they're driving away and only manages to hit his son. So Carl Wiley is kept as a wounded hostage of these three men for 24 hours. Now, eventually, they let him go, I can only assume, out of sympathy for the fact that he's been shot. And they go steal another car, and they start trying to make it north, towards South Bend, Texas. As they're about to drive across the bridge over the Brazos River, their bandito spidey senses start to tingle. They sense that there is a trap. 
So they turn around in the middle of the bridge and start to take off. And all of a sudden, all the cops that were hiding in the bushes around this bridge pop up and they start firing. They jump into their cars. The car chases on. These three men are driving their stolen car down these icy roads and they've got a dozen cop cars coming up behind them. And again, as is a running theme with these guys, they skid off the road and crash the car and have to abandon it. They jump out and start taking off on foot across an oil field. Now this moment, y'all, is cinematic as hell. Picture it. It's a field of oil wells, like a man-made forest of enormous, towering, leafless trees. And these three desperados, one of them still wearing the grimy remains of a Santa suit, are running across this field, trying to zig and zag amongst the machines, slipping on frozen ground, gulping in huge breaths of oil fumes. The cars full of police are bounding at their heels across this field like steel hounds at the chase. The lead car slows down just enough for a passenger to get out, and the sure-footed boots of Deputy Sheriff Cy Bradford hit the ground running as he pulls his faithful shotgun, Old Betsy, and swings her around to aim and fires. Boom! Marshal Ratliff, Santa himself, goes down. He's shot in the leg. Deputy Bradford reloads, and then boom! Boom! Henry Helms and Robert Hill each take shot to the knee. They stumble. It looks like they're going to go down, but no. They stagger to their feet, and they keep going because adrenaline's a hell of a drug, y'all. And so Henry Helms and Robert Hill make their escape across this oil field, and the cops converge on Marshal Ratliff, wounded on the ground, He's wounded a lot, actually. It turns out uh, Marshal Ratliff has a total of six gunshot wounds. He also has six guns on him, so nobody's really feeling bad about having shot him. The manhunt for Helms and Hill continues, headed up by legendary Texas Ranger Tom Hickman. They keep the pressure on. They never let these men rest until finally terribly wounded, exhausted, starving, and freezing. Helms and Hill stagger into Graham, Texas, and hand themselves over to the police without so much as a fight. Seven days after the audacious Santa Claus bank robbery, it was all over. Of the four bank robbers, one is dead and the other three are arrested. The money and the hostages have all been returned safe and sound. So that's it. End of story, right? Oh, no, 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 no. Not even close. You see, these three guys still have to go to trial. Marshall Ratliff, Henry Helms, and Robert Hill were each tried separately. Uh, Robert Hill definitely did the robbery, but there was no evidence that he actually shot anybody. So he pled guilty to armed robbery, got convicted, and sentenced to 99 years in prison. Now, if you listen to our last episode, when we delved into the Texas prison system, uh, prison is... You'll see that prison was pretty terrible, even for prison. So Robert Hill uh, escaped prison three separate times and was recaptured each time and taken back to prison. He was finally paroled after about 20 years, uh, changed his name, and lived the quiet life of a productive citizen until he passed away in 1996. Henry Helms was ID'd by many, many witnesses as the one who had shot and killed both Police Chief Bedford and Officer Carmichael, who, by the time of trial, had passed away. Helms tried to plead insanity, but that failed, and he got sentenced to death. His last meal was cabbage with sausage and tomatoes, a cup of coffee, and a slice of pie. And he was executed by electric chair on September 6, 1929. Marshall Ratliff, though... This guy was determined to go out the way that he had lived, an unrepentant outlaw, an irrepressible sociopath fighting his fate every single step of the way. 
Ratliff was convicted of armed robbery in January of 1928 and sentenced to 99 years in prison. Then, in March of that year, he was put on trial for his role in the murders of Police Chief Bedford and Officer Carmichael, and he was convicted, never mind that literally nobody could testify to having actually seen him shoot them. So Ratliff appealed, and that failed, so then he tried to plead insanity. His own mother was writing letters to the judges, begging them to give him a lunacy hearing. Now, I have no idea what a lunacy hearing is or how one could possibly go about trying to plead insanity after you have already been tried and convicted and gone up on appeal. Don't worry, we will be asking the lawyer, Stephanie, all about this in just a few minutes. But back to Ratliff. The fact that he was now trying to plead insanity was so infuriating to the citizens of Cisco, Texas, who wanted their pound of flesh. They wanted this guy to pay for having killed two of their police officers and caused mayhem and ruined Christmas for everybody, particularly two little girls. So they put enormous amount of pressure on a judge who issued a bench warrant to have Ratliff moved from Huntsville to Eastland County Jail, closer to Cisco. Now, in order to help his case that he was crazy, Ratliff started acting crazy. He faked a catatonic paralysis so convincing that his two jailers, Tom Jones and Pat Kilborn, had to move him, had to feed him, had to dress him, had to bathe him and take him to the toilet. They had to do everything for him because he had lost his mind so thoroughly, obviously, he couldn't move himself. He did it all so convincingly that Jones and Kilborn finally slipped up and they left him in his cell with the door wide open. So Ratliff snuck out of his cell down to the jail guard office and stole a gun. Now about then, Jones and Kilborn had noticed, oops, the paralyzed guy is not in his cell. So they get down to the office just in time for Ratliff to turn around and shoot Tom Jones dead. He tried to take a shot at Pat Kilborn, but Kilborn tackled him to the ground. Now, while this is going down right outside the office, Kilborn's badass queen of a daughter, Mala, sees her father tackling a prisoner to the ground. She grabs her own gun and jumps in to try and help him. Other people nearby had to physically restrain her from shooting and killing Ratliff. Kilborn pins Ratliff to the ground, beats him unconscious, and drags him back to his jail cell. So now a crowd begins to gather outside the jail. Not just any kind of crowd. This is an ugly crowd, as though perhaps the bloodthirsty spirit of frontier justice has risen up and taken possession of a thousand, two thousand people, turning them into one massive angry beast with a thousand mouths yelling for Ratliff's blood. They're outside the prison and they will not be turned away. Kilborn tries to refuse. He tries to protect his prisoner. He's doing what's right by the law, but he gets overpowered by 20, 30 men who storm into the jail and grab Ratliff, drag him out of his cell. They haul him outside, this enormous crowd screaming for justice and unwilling to allow law and order to seek it for them. And they've got a rope. Because y'all, let's make no mistake, this is a lynch mob. And they find a power line tree out in front of the Majestic Theater, and they throw that rope over it and fasten it around Ratliff's neck and haul him up, but then the knot on the rope snaps, and he hits the ground. And they don't take this as a sign that maybe this is insane and they should stop. No, the crowd grabs another rope. They tie a better knot this time. They throw it up over the power line tree, and they get it around Ratliff's neck, and they haul him 15 feet up in the air, and he hangs by the neck until dead in front of the Majestic Theater, and I'm not kidding y'all, the marquee on the front of that theater is advertising a play called The Noose by Willard Mack. And so Marshall Ratliff, 
the last of the bandits in the greatest manhunt ever seen in Texas to that date, mastermind of a crime that was, quote, the most spectacular crime in the history of the Southwest, surpassing any in which Billy the Kid or the James Boys had ever figured, the erstwhile Santa Claus was dead by lynching on November 19, 1929, and nobody was ever arrested for it. And you might think, surely now, at this point, the bloodthirsty craving for justice has been sated, but no, the city of Cisco, Texas, isn't done with Marshall Ratliff just yet. Everybody in town, and for miles and miles around, wanted to see his body. They wanted to look at him and know that this man was dead. Thousands of people turned up in Cisco to see the body of Marshall Ratliff. It was too many people for the morgue to handle, so what did they do? They put his body on display in the furniture store next door, literally in the window so that the lines of people could just walk by the window and get a good look at him. Eventually, Marshall Ratliff's mother was able to reclaim his body and have him buried in an unmarked grave in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Fort Worth. And with that, the howling, hideous, bloodthirsty spirit of frontier justice was finally put to rest in Cisco, Texas. Make me get my my vigilance committee, <laughs> my vigilante committee, all up in your business. Is that is vigilance committee like? It's vigilante committee. No, no, but no. I think vigilance. I like sounds vigilance better. committee because that that sounds like the modernized version of a vigilante committee. Vigilance it sounds, sounds like, like the level of attentiveness it deserves. <laughs> well, but vigilance committee sounds like it's run by a bunch of Karens. <laughs> Can you imagine? This is the modern day lynch mob. Is a bunch of Karens typing away on their phones. So many managers. So many managers. <laughs> All managers run in fear. <laughs> oh, my God. Wait a minute. Get out. It is vigilance committees. <laughs> Wait. Get what's out. It? Did you just Google my Karen concept? What's no. vigilance committees? When I said vigilance committees, I thought I was saying it wrong. But no, according to the Texas State Historical Association, I was saying you're right. That is the best website ever. <laughs> Isn't it? I have lost so many hours they, to they TSA, TSHA online. So many articles. <laughs> vigilance committees. What do vigilance committees do? Is it really a bunch oh. of Karens or are there more cowboy no, hats no, involved? This is, this is the, the mob rule. Like, <clears throat> oh. Some of it overlaps with that period we were talking about last time. Mm -hmm. um, right. So... When the wheels of justice are slow, mm -hmm. and then in certain areas where there was a lack of law enforcement, in certain instances, mm -hmm. these uh, committees would form, and they would execute justice, and they would resolve disputes, wow. um, sometimes violently, sometimes... You know, I feel like with probably, a lack of certain evidence, maybe. I feel like probably most times violently. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that these vigilance committees were probably disproportionately applied towards people of color. Okay, so <clears> we <throat> can we can go ahead and use the concept of lynch mobs for the disproportionate use against people of color because yeah. that was a real thing and very much a thing in Texas. I was going to tell you, so we could do... So proud of Texas in this moment. Ugh. I went down some rabbit holes. We could do an entire episode on lynch mobs and lynching and oh can we vigilante mobs that would be Texas. so fun such we're gonna i mean now that deep, you've thrown that out there yeah send a, myself an email about there that. is a huge wealth of information and apparently it some of it is quite well tracked and uh well because it's like it's not even 
there no effort is made to cover it up like for for marshall ratliff in the prison records you know it shows his height and his oh, weight yes. and the color of his eyes his you know and the fact that he's white and all of these things and then cause of death the lynching yeah lynched on and the date and the date it just in says his, dude mm-hmm. was lynched it really like, does wh- okay um so m- i only had a handful of questions right and one of them we um we're going to you know quickly gloss over because i could not find um the procedural information for Ratliff and his trials and no, oh, okay. I found Nothing. Helms's court case. Oh, nice. But I did not find because they were tried separately. I did not find any relationship oh, okay. to the issues dealing with Marshall Ratliff. And I could not find his, you know, any um, decisions mm-hmm. or appellate analyses. And so I couldn't tell where he was procedurally in okay. relation to his sentence but I did find, and there was some conflicting information, I found it super interesting, his mother mm-hmm. arranged for him to have the sanity hearing, right. which brought him back to Eastland. And I just had a big question mark. So how? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Every reference to that I found was that she was was trying to get him a sanity hearing so that he could be declared insane mm-hmm. and not be put to death. And it, he was in Huntsville mm-hmm. at the time that happened. Arguably much safer <laughs> for him to be in Huntsville prison. I, I have to assume either one of two options. She's trying to get him killed <laughs> by getting him moved back closer to Cisco. <laughs> uh, or the, I, I suppose, slightly more likely option is she didn't know that putting these wheels in motion would bring him closer. I hadn't actually seen mm-hmm. that connection. Yes. And since I saw that, it made me wonder... Well, where exactly were we procedurally Mm -hmm. that, you know, what were you, what aspect of the case were they dealing with? What was she, Mm -hmm. what were they doing trying to build a better case for what vehicle on appeal? Yeah. Or was it simply, okay, now that he's been sentenced, maybe he needs to be serving his time in an institution or other facility. I couldn't tell. Yeah. Like what were they going for? Mm -hmm. Because everything that I've learned from our conversation so far uh, is you don't get to plead insanity after you've already been tried and convicted unless, unless it, you were insane the whole time, but he didn't start acting like a crazy person until Helms uh, was executed. That's right. I couldn't figure out like, did he say he was insane before did he even, did they consider that plea? Was, um, was there a request for a competency hearing beforehand? Now, is that what a lunacy hearing is? Because that's all I heard it referred to as was a lunacy hearing. So um, when, when I was reading through the notes, um, in one of the reports, they called it a sanity hearing. Okay. And so I don't know if back then the parlance was, you know, two very different or if it was a single evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was for competence, they're evaluating his current mental state. His competence to be tried. Right. To be tried and to participate in his defense. And then if you are um, looking at sanity, you're mm-hmm. looking backwards at the time. Okay. Now, the um, other thing Oh, wow. That's, yeah. That's two very separate things. Yes. Okay. So when you committed the crime, mm-hmm. what was your state of mind? Were you able to discern the difference between right and wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, were you under some delusion or mental defect? And at that time, I believe the standard for insanity was very different than it is today. Mm-hmm. Today, it has become a more restrictive standard. And so, but back then, it was more the, were you under a delusion? It was a little bit of a broader standard. Okay. So. So, 
it sounds like then if they were looking for a, a lunacy hearing or a sanity hearing, they may have been trying to like we can only speculate mm-hmm. that they were trying to say that he was crazy at the time. So if they were yeah, if it was to support a plea of insanity, mm-hmm. that would be it. If it was to support that he can't be imprisoned in, you know, Huntsville, mm-hmm. that he needed to be transferred to another facility, that might be a different. That seems because, to be what he was going for. I mean, it seems like yeah. that that makes a lot of sense looking at the circumstances, you mm-hmm. know, far removed and not having any of right. the records to support it. <laughs> not not <laughs> having any actual proof or, or any, any. The only you know, record we have data. is his height, his weight, the color of his eyes and how he died. That's so. correct. <laughs> and it makes sense, too, because I think, um, you know, defendants are entitled to a certain standard of care mm-hmm. and um, obvious medical care. Um, an obvious medical attention um, is is one thing that you are entitled to. Mm. And so if he needed particular care at a psychiatric facility, that that may have been an impetus hmm. for him to be evaluated. So he got tried for the armed robbery mm-hmm. and convicted and sentenced and then later tried for the murder. Yes. What? Was that weird? I found that, that seemed weird. weird to me. And that's also because would was... that not have been a murder committed while doing the armed robbery yes. all in one trial? And so I thought that was strange. And I wanted to, to get a sense of procedurally what was going on there, because that also, to me, would bear on this whole sanity and competence inquiry. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, yeah, they severed, they clearly severed the, the trial between the defendants. Right. And then they severed it for the crimes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know if that was common then. I don't know if there was some particular. That, that... seemed weird. Yes. Like, why would that, that not that... all be one scenario? Because that then you're asking a jury. That irregular to me. Yeah. And there was no, there was no enlightening mention. There was no illumination and all of the notes and transcripts that I could find the excerpts for. Mm-hmm. And they certainly didn't mention it in Helms's case. So. Right. And it's because they did it for both of them. And it's like. It seems odd to ask a jury to look at armed robbery. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a fucking infamous case. There's no way the jury doesn't know mm-hmm. how things shook out. So look at the armed robbery. We're not going to talk about the fact that two cops were killed yet. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the murder trial. And you're like, we're going to talk about the fact that two cops were killed. Maybe this was why they did it. The guy's already convicted of the armed robbery. You know he did it. Right. So here he is. And we're going to, you're going to decide if he actually killed some people while he did it. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that was it. Maybe and that was so the strategy. I think the risk there, mm-hmm. the risk there would have been if you're not guilty in the first instance. Right. Well, that really gums up mm-hmm. your your later trial. So I thought it was, um, I did think it was weird that they did that, but um, I didn't I didn't get the reasoning okay. or rationale. Okay, good, good, good. It's not just me not knowing what the hell's going on. That really was strange. What was... Um, Interesting was um, a lot of consistency in the reporting about um, mob justice that Mm -hmm. would occur. And it seemed like um, the reason you have a lack of investigation after the fact. Like zero. Like zero. There was a grand jury, but I could find almost nothing about what the grand jury thought or what their findings were. I feel like that was a formality. Yes. So that's right. Um, Some of the uh, reporting about when these instances would occur it appears that very influential people mm-hmm. in the towns were parts of the mob. Oh, no. And um, <laughs> So if you there, look too close, like the mayor's kid is probably in there. You know, there could be, yes. And oh. um, 
in many cases, information about where the defendant is so that the unruly mob can go and you like, know, demand how did, them. How did this mob know he was there? Because I like, obviously, once the scuffle breaks out and there's shots fired inside the prison, like some certain amount of information is going to get out. But the mob was kind of already there. So it's yes, um, it seemed from the reporting that 200 people mm-hmm. showed up. And entered the jailhouse. Right. But there was two people had been watching. One was at the front Mm -hmm. and one was with Ratliff. Right. Against 200. But I saw reports that outside there was a thousand, two thousand people. Like the street was full of um, people. And there was like 30 guys that managed to overpower Kilborn himself. And it took 30 guys to overpower Kilborn himself to get to the prisoner. Like there was one law abiding dude in this whole situation. Yeah. (laughs) And it seems like. they, one of the articles, the 200 people got into. Yeah, like how, how the you, hell? How, how the hell what? did 200 people get into the prison? And then what did they do once they got in there? Were they just standing around? Can you imagine? Making like, a line, a serving line. I don't. Just like, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what it's like to be a part of a mob. I imagine there's a lot of standing around and scowling at stuff. But like that momentum, that energy has to burn off pretty quick. Oh, so like what so keeps it going? That is actually... Um, in the history, when you're describing mm-hmm. a, an unruly mob or right. this um, vigilante mob, one of the features is it forms quickly, mm-hmm. it does the violent act, and then it dissipates almost as quickly as it came together. I, it's how I, I swear it's bizarre. like it's like possession. It's like all of a sudden this like this it just spins up into existence like a tornado, and it destroys a bunch of stuff, and then it's gone. Or it kills one guy in a really poetic moment, hanging by his neck in front of a theater that says the noose on the marquee behind him. In the movie of this crime, in my mind, there's like the silhouette of his feet sort of swinging gently in front of this brightly lit marquee. And then the focus changes and you see the letters come into focus and you see it says the noose. But... But That's then right. it would be accused of being a little too on the nose, like this ridiculous Hollywood fiction. But no, y'all, that happened. It really was the noose. It had just opened on Broadway of, like a few months before. That's and now right. it was traveling and it was in Cisco, Texas for some reason, just in time for somebody to be hanged out in front of the theater. This was such a great, um, just infamous story. There are so many. People are um, all over it. There's a painting. Yes. On display in the bank in Cisco, Texas, a painting of the Santa Claus bank robbery. They love this story so much. So were you able to find anything about uh, how legal it was for the <laughs> Texas Bankers Association to offer to pay $5,000 to kill people? So, <laughs> I love how you are like, tell me a little more about this. <laughs> is this, is this Let me... legal? Because, uh, yeah, go ahead. Were you able to find anything about so, that? So, yes, I did um, find some trails. I found some. Um, to some extent, it's a little unclear because um, of the, the state of the law at the time and the reporting. Mm-hmm. You saw the signs, um, you know, $5,000 reward. And surely it incentivized people to um, surround the bank mm-hmm. and get involved. But I think um, several places, the reporting is very careful that the Bankers Association uh, made the reward for the um, shooting of the robber during the robbery. Mm. So it's, to me, clear that there is this limit 
that has to be consistent with the law. Like if you are defending oneself Mm -hmm. or defending another person during the course of a crime, that is significantly different than somebody walking upon Mm -hmm. the bad guy robber, you know, in in a Mm -hmm. calm and pleasant scene and just shooting them. Right. So, okay. um, So they, they managed to skirt that law by saying, we will only pay you if you kill them and kill them while they're doing it. Right. And so the the commission of the robbery Mm -hmm. would entail like the start of the crime to the finish. And so I think, you know, getting away with the loot is probably still part of that transaction. While they're still running with the bag that's got the dollar signs written on it. (laughs) That's right. right, Down the street. And yes. In their stripy shirt. That's what all bank robbers look like to me. So they managed to skirt the legality of the issue by saying that it had to happen during the commission of the crime. The Texas Rangers were still not pleased. Surely. And well, and I think, um, you know, that it had to be consistent with, I think, today we have even um, citizens arrest laws, for instance. Yeah. Right. Um, And so, or a citizen, Mm -hmm. when you are doing your job as a citizen Mm -hmm. and you, you know, confront a criminal, I think as a general rule, you can't do something that the cops can't do. You can't go outside what's already legally sanctioned. Okay. So, and I think in a similar vein, when they had those um, reward postings, Mm -hmm. you know, just because there is a reward posting Mm -hmm. for it doesn't, doesn't provide you legal Mm -hmm. cover. Um, And then I think you're right. The banks skirted any illegality by making it a, Hey, we're just, you know, asking for citizens to be vigilant. Yeah. The thing is like, uh, in so, the defense of themselves and their persons and also our property. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because I think the hmm. Texas Bankers Association, their point was uh, when the when the cops came to them saying, hey, uh, please don't encourage people to kill other people. Uh, their point was, well, you're not stopping them from robbing us. We have to find a way to stop them from robbing us. And I found uh, some... Uh, press releases it really wasn't a press like the first police press conference in texas was because of this case uh tom hickman the texas ranger had to like get up in front of reporters and say Mm -hmm. okay we are looking for these guys i promise we're going to find them and so that was the first time that happened um but the texas bankers association the language of how they put it was like we have to do something this extreme we have to put an enormous dollar sign on these guys because that's the only language that criminals understand and so we are speaking to them in their language. And it was very like, I don't know. It was. So it, it feels a little funny to me because I think it's also because Cisco back then mm. was a boom town. I mean, it they was had so, it oil was like, and gas money like other towns didn't have. It was literally at, in 1927, like five times the size it is today yeah. as far as population. It was so big. And so that I mean, so you're talking about very well-heeled mm-hmm. interests. And this is also during a time that because law enforcement isn't as established and uh, cannot respond with the same resources as perhaps today, right. there were so many bank robbers and mm-hmm. bank robberies occurring. It was some sort of open season. Yeah. And uh, three or four a day. I just can't even imagine. Well, and I think it's quite expedient of the bank mm-hmm. to offer a reward instead of, you know, hiring its own security yeah it's cheaper out there. right because it's not like because if you hire your own security you maybe you have to pay them to stand around and not be catching anybody and you probably have to pay to provide them with their their own weapons and you know what the state oh. the citizenry of texas for the most part perfectly capable of providing their own 
And I mean, this is purely just my own outside. What is that? A uh, armchair quarterbacking. Armchair quarterbacking. But if something goes wrong and it's some citizen, you can much more easily disavow. Like, hey, that whoa, we uh, we're not liable. For we that. didn't say go crazy town. We <laughs> said. You know, we said. For and I, I think that was the stance that they took when the the Rangers came to them and said, you realize that people are just hiring migrant workers and posting them up in front of banks and then accusing them of bank robbery and killing them. And the banks, the, the TBA was like, ah, you know, I don't know anything about that. So and there's an interesting, while I was looking into these um, reward posters, because I Totally took me on tangents of like bounty hunting. Um, we have got to get into at, bounty hunting. <laughs> for sure. We have got to. As well as, you know, uh, mob violence mm-hmm. and, you know, those extrajudicial kind of forms of justice. Mm-hmm. There was a case in uh, Missouri that had a similar situation and it was a dead or alive, nice. you know, reward, mm-hmm. wanted poster situation. And um, I'm sorry. Yes, Nico, can I help you? <laughs> She's like, hold on. What do you need? Princess, do you have an opinion on lynch mobs? She does not. She has an opinion about the fact that we're sitting at a dining table and not giving her the chicken that's not on the table. We're not eating anything. We're savages, right? We're we're teasing her specifically. Princess Nico, go away. I love you. Go away. Oh, my God. Um, So the one thing was the thing that really blew my whole ever-loving mind about this bounty that the TBA put on bank robbers was, did you see when they ended it? No. Did you see when they stopped offering a $5,000 reward for dead bank robbers? 1964. Ah! Okay. 1964 is when they were like, you know what, maybe we're going to quietly stop offering to kill people or to pay you for killing people. That is amazing. Decades. Okay. Decades that was on the books. That was something you could have cashed in on. So Holy uh, shit. When you mentioned the Texas Rangers, I thought that was notable because the Texas Rangers, um, it was in the late 1890s when they really took efforts to stop these um, vigilance committees. Um, by about 1897, they had, uh, you know, mainly eradicated those... Um, the well-known groups. Okay. Wait, so vigilance committees, this isn't a euphemism. This is an actual, like, organization within a town that was a real thing. We are going to, okay, how deep do you want to dive into this right now? <laughs> you want to, I mean. So the lynch mob thing is, it's really important to look at as a part of Texas's history mm-hmm. and really about the history of our country mm-hmm. in general. And, um, and there are some, uh, heartbreaking and I think very relevant stories that we need to look at. We will do a deeper dive into lynch mobs and mob justice and all of that at a later time. That's right. Like a more, that's a, a more separate. nuanced. Um, for here and for, for its purposes as it intersects with this story, I think it's interesting yeah. that what we looked at during the Servant Girl Annihilator episode and these burgeoning mm-hmm. you know, developments in our um, justice system and there were courts, there there was law, right. um, but there was also a lack of resources. There's that justice delayed, mm-hmm. feels like justice denied. And so there were those, um, those gaps in the justice system mm-hmm. and the resources that caused vigilance committees and vigilantism to kind of spring up right. in that absence of structure. 
But then, you know, towards the 1890s, we are getting to the point where we're like, whoa, we don't need (laughs) a mob like stringing up everybody that they think has stolen a horse. You know, these are things that need to be handled by the system. And then here in 1927, we still have the vestiges Mm -hmm. of this take the law into your own hands culture. Um, And people were very comfortable doing so. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the thing to remember is in 1927, the Wild West was not that long ago. That's right. It was 30 years ago. It was last generation. You know, these people who were in this mob, their parents were probably, uh, you know, homesteaders. It was not that long ago. So, yeah, this this isn't even an archaic notion to them. This is what mom and dad did. This yeah. is what my grandpappy did. It's consonant with some of our current values, too. Like mm-hmm. the ability to protect yourself mm-hmm. and your property. What's up, Second Amendment? You know, to defend, you know, yourself to right. the extent reasonable. And the use of force is something that kind of pervades all of these mm-hmm. discussions. And I think that's why it was important to think about... Um, with the dead or alive or with the reward Mm -hmm. um, posters that your behavior couldn't exceed that that was already legally sanctionable. Right. Um, There's an interesting case in Texas um, that discusses one of the, one of the primary rationales for limiting uh, citizens conduct in affecting like a citizen's arrest or detaining an individual Mm -hmm. Um, aside from how, um, how much that tempts a breach of the peace, mm-hmm. right? When you have Joe Schmo saying like, hold up, mm-hmm. I'm going to hold you till, till the authorities get here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also this idea of um, the judicial process that will later occur. And if mm-hmm. somebody um, in affecting a citizen's arrest takes things or snoops through things or tries to gather evidence in a way that would otherwise be illegal for an officer. And then the the officers can't use that. Inadmissible. That's right. Because the exclusionary rule will not allow a private citizen Mm -hmm. to put, you know, bring forth into the investigation evidence that wouldn't have been. It doesn't come up often, or I didn't find it in a lot of the cases. Mm -hmm. Usually, though, um, when you're reading an appellate case on an issue, it's because some stuff has gone really wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is the case that made the law. And you're like, oh, I don't know if you should have done that. And Mm -hmm. um, the case I read that detailed the the, the role of the exclusionary rule with regard to evidence Mm -hmm. and, you know, not wanting private citizens to taint the whole body of evidence that can be used in a trial. in that situation, um, the citizens were involved in a chase where multiple laws were broken oh. of who became the defendant because they witnessed him break a law. And um, they saw this man driving drunk. Mm-hmm. They thought um, he needed to stay at the scene of this accident. And they proceeded to chase him down. And, and cause who knows how and many other accidents. All kinds of oh, mayhem and chaos. And <laughs> And that's, of course, the the circumstance that becomes, you know, the discussion for the court. Right. And that's not the same as like, whoa, hey, guy, I'm just going to kind of, you know, stand here and keep you here until the police come. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a much greater distance between those two examples. And in this case, the court brought up the fact that, like, what you don't want is a bunch of private citizens, Mm -hmm. like, stopping somebody and saying, look at all the... The drugs we found, and look at all the right. money we've like. Where did you find that? Did and you... we pulled out of the yeah. this and that because not only is that just destructive to the whole mm-hmm. investigative process, but now you have this 
allowing citizens to do what the government cannot do. Right. And you can't incentivize this perverted system where mm-hmm. individuals are going and doing what would... Where, where the government implicitly looks the other way while the citizens plant evidence or contaminate yeah. the fuck out of crime scenes. Or just or... violate the, the civil rights, the yeah. defendant's rights, right, to not incriminate themselves, right. to not allow their their homes or their persons to be unreasonably searched this is a tight seized tight rope and the another thing just separately police officers are aware Mm -hmm. of the standards that govern their conduct oh yeah they are much more aware of the laws and the statutes and what they say Mm -hmm. and you know all of us who may or may not witness a situation You know, we don't know the rules of engagement. Right. You know, so we all we don't know how to keep ourselves safe in those situations, but we also don't know what's going to completely ruin. But like, I've watched every episode of Bones. Right. So I know. (laughs) I know what you are, what counts as evidence and what does not. I have seen the NCIS. I have watched CSI. I, as an as an average citizen, have now been educated by TV and can run willy nilly out into the into the world. People listening cannot see that we both just made the same arm gesture to indicate <laughs> flinging ourselves out into the world to do citizen justice. Well, that's right. No, sure. I think because I've seen so much. Mm-hmm. You know what is that NYPD Blue, and I've watched all the Law and Order series. Look, I learn a lot from watching Jimmy Smith's do things. I can say I know what probable cause is. I learn a lot I... about myself as a woman <laughs> watching and Jimmy Smith's do you. things. I know. I know what smells like probable cause, and I. I think I, can... I think I know what I'm doing. Well, and it's funny because the case that I read it confirmed that a citizen's arrest is legit. It is. You know, it does exist. I don't think anything in the case suggested it was advisable or that, (laughs) you know, that was necessarily something we'd want to um, encourage because Mm -hmm. of all the reasons we just... But typically, like, a citizen's arrest would occur out in the world where authorities are not already on the scene. Well, and right. I would think. Certainly not in a case where the... uh, person in question the criminal in question is not only already arrested but has been tried and convicted and is being held in a prison already awaiting further legal so, yeah, action I was not about to yeah that's nobody nobody got to collect the dead robber reward <laughs> in this situation for, because no. of what happened there for sure but um the idea though you're right in some circumstances mm-hmm. um a citizen may act to defend themselves or others right. or or try to um, prevent a breach of the peace. Mm-hmm. And it seems like those are all legitimate human scenarios. And the law recognizes that. Or sometimes, you know, because like I, you know, I, I train in, in Kung Fu and self-defense. And most of what we train for is to disable an attacker so that we can get away. But the reality of the situation is it once we've disabled somebody, we may need to then make sure that they stay down so that somebody can call the police. So there's a... a a situation where somebody would need to be subdued and then awaiting police. And then I guess at that point, like, do you have to officially declare a citizen's arrest situation or are you just waiting for the cops to show up and they'll take it from there? So I'm, I'm assuming that at some point you're like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm apprehending you or I'm putting you under a citizen's arrest because mm-hmm. the assumption is that you're acting as a reasonable mm-hmm. agent under the circumstances. Right. Um, 
it's a question that gets asked under the facts and the circumstances. You have to look at the way everything went down and what mm-hmm. all the facts lend to that situation. But I think um, you brought up a really good point in that all of this is also did bound I? up. <laughs> in the accidental. Yes, <laughs> but you did. The reasonable use of force. Okay. Right. So one of the big problems with those um, wanted posters mm-hmm. and the and trying to make it conform to what's legally permissible is you're only allowed to use force that's reasonable under the circumstances. Okay. Right. And who and determines what's reasonable? That's a fact question. That is oh, something a that's jury a, decides. That's a later situation. That is okay. a, yeah, looking at all the facts and circumstances, mm-hmm. what's reasonable is what, you know, 12 people would determine is reasonable based on just everything you can put forward. Mm-hmm. And that would have to be, what were you apprehending under the circumstances? What did you truly feel was the the lay of the land Mm -hmm. and then what an objective third party would think of the situation right so if um somebody wearing a clown suit was coming at me and i am terrified so i shoot him 10 times that was not a reasonable that's not a reasonable i even if it caused me all the fear that mm -hmm. i was going to be murdered in my life that a is third party would not look not that objectively and go, reasonable. You were so in danger, uh, unless that third party was me. In which case, yes. You're like, but it do was a you clown. have more bullets? <laughs> but it was a clown. Did I ever tell you uh, that I was a clown? No, but, <laughs> but this changes everything. <laughs> no, just out of out of high school, I was a party <laughs> clown. Uh, I worked for a, a company that would send, you know, you would go to like kids' birthday parties and stuff and do a couple of cheap magic tricks. And I, I can make balloon animals uh, and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I was a party clown. And did you know, fun clown fact. <laughs> Wait, those words don't go together. <laughs> fun clown fact. Uh, in a troop of clowns, um, uh, you can, the rank is de- denoted by the size of the nose on the clown so if you are a little baby clown like i was uh then you had like maybe just drew a red circle on the end of your nose i graduated eventually to it was like a little like a half a maraschino cherry spirit gum to the end of my nose my boss had this giant honker but like you squeeze it and it would go and that was his nose this is today i learned you learned, going, learned a terrible thing about your friend. I'm sorry. I'm going straight to the world with that one. I, I yeah. Sparkles. I, I was Sparkles the Clown. That was my name. Of course you were Sparkles. <laughs> okay. Did I ever tell you about when I got pulled over? Oh. I don't know, but I just feel like somebody <laughs> should say something about who is seriously doubting whose commitment to Sparkle Motion. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, um, it was like my my second job ever. And I'm going to this kid's birthday party. And so now, mind you, this is a time we don't, there's no cell phones. Okay. I have a pager and, and there are pay phones and I have directions written down on a piece of paper to get to this lady's house. This is, that just dated us yeah, entirely. By the way. Paper directions. Uh-huh. Pay phones. Pay phones. Sky pager. Yeah. I am uh, in my mom's car. It's a little LeBaron convertible. Top up. And if you're going to a kid's birthday party, you have to already be in costume when you get there you can't show up as a regular lady excuse yourself to the bathroom and come out as a clown that fucks up the magic right, right? so i'm already in costume which involves i was an auguste clown which means that you only have like the white like a rodeo clown the white around the mouth oh so it's not like a full white about. face yeah. yeah because full white face is fucking terrifying don't take that to a kid's party <laughs> uh i had like a little slouchy like multicolored santa hat with a bobble 
on top. My hair, which was really long back then, it was down to my ass. Um, I had braided around wires. So they were up like hippie log stocking Um, style up here and covered in glitter. Uh, My outfit had, it was like the the puffy sleeve clown outfit. Uh, I had a button that said, hello, my name is Sparkles. In big letters, I had glitter all over everything. This is how 19-year-old me is driving down the street. Okay? (laughs) I am going to go to this kid's birthday party and I'm going to rock it out. This kid's going to have the best birthday. So I'm driving. I'm trying to find this place. I can't find it. And I can't find it. And Are you a sad clown at this point? Oh, so I can't. uh, So I need to call my boss and verify the address. But I do not have a cell phone because it is not that time yet. So I have to pull over. To take out of in your my, briefcase. In, I had to get out my full... <laughs> I need to get out of the car in my full clown regalia and go up to a payphone at a gas station <laughs> and try to call my boss. My boss isn't answering because he's out at another job. I really hope somebody got a picture of you at the gas station. It was constant. <laughs> I had people coming up the whole time. I'm on the phone trying to coordinate it, like, smile, picture. But it wasn't phones. People were, like, getting, they were going into the gas station to buy disposable cameras and come out and take pictures of the sad clown at the phone booth. And I'm trying to hold it together. I can't get a hold of my boss. I'm trying to call the contact lady for the, the contact number for the mom at this party. She's not answering. I cannot get the address. I cannot get a hold of anybody. As far as I'm concerned, I have personally ruined a child's birthday because I can't get there and the directions don't make any sense and I can't call my boss and I'm going to get fired and I'm all this. Like, I am on the verge of tears. But I finally call my mom because there are no other solutions and I don't know what to do. So I call my mom and she says, honey, come home. Like I'm already an hour late for this party. There's no way I'm gonna get there in time. I don't know what's happened. She says, baby, just come home, okay? And I'm like, okay, well. And I get in the car and I'm driving home and somehow the cop saw the expired inspection sticker on the windshield and not the clown behind it. So I get pulled over and that's just fucking it. I am done. I burst into tears. When it comes to birth control. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. How what rude. is going on? I was going to give you awesome background music and there was a fucking ad. <laughs> Standing outside a broken phone booth with money in my hand. Oh, okay. Stop contributing. <laughs> I was trying to add value and instead... You can't I add value destroyed. that I would have to pay the rights for. Stop <laughs> doing that. <laughs> there was a birth control ad. <laughs> Look, so, if dressing up as a crying clown isn't birth control, I don't know what is. Okay, so... So I burst into tears. I'm driving my mama's car. I didn't even know this. I don't know why I'm getting pulled over. Just all the tears. My clown, there's rivers of glitter and grease paint just down my face and onto my ruffle collar. And so Officer Bubba clearly was not expecting to pull over a clown today. (laughs) I can see him sauntering up in my side view mirror. I cannot get it together. He comes up to the window and he goes, you know why I pulled you over today? Uh (laughs) And he just stops. And 
I'm weeping into my hands and I told you, I've got the spirit gummed maraschino cherry on the end of my nose. I go to look up at him and it comes off. <laughs> and I'm, I'm holding my nose in my hands and I look up. I'm, it's hard to turn my head because my brains are getting stuck on the headrest of the back of the car. I look up at this police officer and I go, my nose came off. And he says, I'm sorry. <laughs> Please don't cry. And then he leans over, looks at my button and goes, sparkles. <laughs> I would have tiptoed backwards away from the car. He let me he let me go with a warning oh. and told me to to get my inspection updated. Oh. So all okay. of that is to say uh, that I know on an intellectual personal experience level that clowns are not dangerous. They're not. But if I saw a clown chasing you and your reaction was to shoot him ten times in the chest, I would be the third party that said, I don't think she shot him enough. <laughs> That is I don't you're right it was not an appropriate level of force she should have used a bazooka <laughs> that is only that was clearly a supernatural <laughs> monster that she was trying to slay Fucking clowns so oh. um anyway but right so reasonability <laughs> reasonability is a wildly recurring concept in the law mm -hmm. because um a lot of our decisions especially our split second decisions our decisions to protect ourselves or mm -hmm. use force um a lot of things are whether or not we're negligent in some circumstance. It's all based on were we being reasonable mm -hmm. under the circumstances. I love that the law is like, can we just be reasonable? I'm just, I'm the law. I just want you to be a reasonable human being. Right. Because can it, we? It can't be one size fits all, right? Like um, when you're talking about defending, defending yourself, right? And you know, say, say you're Chuck Norris. What, what, yeah. what is a threat to Chuck Norris is very different than what is a threat to the personal safety of, you know, you or I. Right. So, yeah, when you are um, defending yourself or when you are allowed to use only that force, which is necessary mm -hmm. to um, defend yourself, then that's a question of mm -hmm. circumstance. The other thing is deadly force has its own. You know, you cannot just use deadly force when non-deadly force would suffice for the situation. Okay. When you are defending yourself against the commission of a crime, mm -hmm. you know, you would um, be able to use deadly force to prevent the use of deadly force. Okay. Or um, if it's aggravated robbery mm -hmm. or kidnapping or murder, you know, so, um, so again, the circumstances and the details and mm -hmm. whether or not, you know, somebody is threatening another with deadly force mm -hmm. is pivotal to that, that question of what the offense might be mm. or what your um, self, you know, what your affirmative defense to that charge would be. So if we look at the armed robbery scenario with Ratliff and his boys, um, that was, they were, they walked in there with deadly force intent. Anybody in there would have been well within their rights to pull a gun and respond with deadly force to prevent deadly force. Yeah, I think that's right. Because then, there were children. There yeah, were, there was a there crowd were citizens, of citizens. They mm -hmm. were all... The bank, there were loaded guns being mm -hmm. used. They were like, stick them up. We have the intent. We are to... clearly pointing guns at right. all of you. Right. So then, you know, we, we talked a lot about the lynch mob that ultimately made the end of Marshall Ratliff. But then there's the mob that gathered outside while the police were there that at, at the bank, the mob that gathered to try and stop these guys from robbing the bank. And like the cops at the time did not seem to have any problem 
with having a couple of dozen armed citizens as backup. That were, and they were like going to the hardware store and buying guns if they didn't happen to have one on them right then. Just like throwing some money on the counter. Give me a gun. They're robbing the bank. Mm-hmm. And everybody seemed really cool with that. Yeah, I, I found that really bizarre also. Because it Thank seems God, to because be... I thought it was weird and I, I didn't want, I needed to know that also from somebody who had legal training, it would still be weird. I think it is, of course, because it wasn't the facade of the bank just riddled with bullets. Like 200 and so you're talking about holes. a situation where you don't know directionally mm-hmm. where all of these well, shots, I mean, like. And at the end of the whole manhunt, like eight people had been injured. Three of them were Ratliff, Helms, and Hill. The other five were guys who maybe shot each other, maybe accidentally discharged a firearm. We don't know. Like they they don't yeah, yeah. they don't know because these you are untrained civilians. You don't know if it's friendly. You don't know if it came from law enforcement. I think that's right. I do think that's and significantly just destructive to the the whole orderly process of things. Mm-hmm. But um, in under the circumstances. It seemed like from the reporting that the comfort was, well, they're not going to get away. Mm-hmm. And considering that there were children mm-hmm. around, it just there were children in like, the car with them. Exactly, like maybe some self restraint with some children. It seemed, you know, yeah, a whole different culture. It was, yeah, was it going just on. seems but like just, I feel like if this kind of thing happened today. If there was a bank robbery and a bunch of citizens were like, we're going to help, the cops would be spending more than half their time just getting the citizens to put their guns down. Well, and I I feel like in today's culture, you wouldn't have that. Right. Well, we, have we would our, hope. Our point of view on, you know, taking up arms as an individual being law enforcement in the moment. Right. Just because has kind of shifted, um, you know, from what we saw at the, um, the UT sniper. Right. And, Which was you know, just 40 years later. For, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then what we saw there, I think today, you don't see that as right. much. You know, there's a there's a SWAT situation. There's a perimeter. Yeah. People I, don't cross it. People don't show up with their guns and offer to, to help or get a beat on yeah. anybody. I think that might be it because it's now police are very well equipped and very highly trained and almost militarily equipped to be able to handle a situation that comes up. So there's not a lot of reason for citizens to go, hey, guys, do you need a, you need a rifle? I have one. And the, the police are charged with everybody's peace and safety. True. And so I think it's... That's the criminals, clear, too. <laughs> right. Well, and it's clear to them, you know, you walking up on that situation mm-hmm. untrained, you haven't worked with these guys. Mm-hmm. You don't know operationally what they're going to be doing. You and your gun need to go home. <laughs> have you ever seen a SWAT officer in person? Yeah. It's a hell of a thing, isn't it? I mean, it's, well, you sure. Like yeah. impressive. Everybody, you know, the, it's, the gear, the, it's, the uniform, the, the demeanor, it's all very. Yeah. And it's very like that's I want nothing to do with getting in between a SWAT officer and what they're dealing with. I feel like that level of competence and danger in one package probably didn't exist in the 60s. It definitely didn't exist in the 60s. Right. It didn't exist in the 20s. That's right. Because the, the UT sniper mm-hmm. event we, we learned prompted. Yeah. You know, the nation to say, oh, we mm-hmm. need special weapons. We need tactical teams. Mm-hmm. We need to learn how to contain and address these types of threats. And I think the same, you know, can be said in that crossover period from the wild frontier right. to these burgeoning cities mm-hmm. or, you know, towns that became cities. You know, there has to be an evolution of, of law enforcement and its tactics. And 
as we become more sophisticated in law enforcement, there is certainly less need for mm-hmm. for all of us to to try to get in the middle of that. Yeah, like I don't I don't feel like I think you're right. Today that wouldn't happen. You wouldn't have half the town mobilizing to and try and help quell a bank robbery. That's not a thing. No, and I think that's the ideal, right? Mm-hmm. We don't. Yeah, no, we, we don't want to be sending because our. You know, so, bystanders no. into these situations. I certainly like, not. I mean, it's certainly not here. Like, can you imagine trusting Austin locals to handle a situation? Can you imagine? Like, the guy with the man bun? He's got a gun. This is going to be great. <laughs> the guy with the man. You mean the, the kids with the PBR? <laughs> He's going to set yeah. his PBR down. <laughs> Hold on, Strategy. hold on, let me finish my taco. <laughs> let me tell you in detail my $12 taco. about this $12 taco that I'm currently eating. My God. Anyway, no. So how did we even get here? Okay, so, um, so the mob. We were talking about the thing. We talked about the mobs. The mobs. Mm-hmm. Plural. Yeah, because this is a two-mob case. This is a two-mob oh scenario. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting because the mob that circled... The, the bank was mm-hmm. clearly incentivized yeah. by the reward, mm-hmm. which equated to a lot of money back then. Yeah. And um, yeah. I could use $75,000. Yeah. I'm not going to kill somebody for it, but, you know, saying. I'm not saying I didn't already imaginarily spend it. Yes. And in all this whole thing, I think it's interesting, too, that the bank recovered all of its money. Yeah. They yeah. didn't even get anything. They got nothing. They lose. And you're right. Oh. It, they were the most bungling they were... incompetent bank robbers i mean in the... bank robber town this was not heat <laughs> no this no not... these guys the oceans 11 these guys were not no. <laughs> like but they had a plan this was surefire thing we're gonna pull this off i feel like i almost feel like ratliff was like i have robbed so many banks and he was in jail for bank robbery so maybe he wasn't real good at it he just wanted to like change it up I got an idea. A lot. It's Christmas. This will be so funny if we do this in a Santa suit. Did you hear about the Christmas Eve service at the church in Cisco after this? No. That is, it was the next day after this bank robbery. The manhunt is still on. Yes. Two cops are dead in town. There was bullets. Everybody was traumatized. Two little girls are never, ever going to recover from being kidnapped by armed men. Uh, but So they had the Christmas Eve service at the church, and they had a Santa come in. To like, ho, 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 it up with the kids. <laughs> so he comes in and there's silence. And then a little boy goes, Santa, why did you rob that bank? I, I did read that, that little excerpt and I didn't realize that was at the service. Okay. Oh, so. can you just, because kids don't know. There's no difference between one guy dressed up as Santa and another guy dressed up as Santa. As far as these kids were concerned, the bank robber just walked in. What else you got? just interesting and compelling that they were like only only for the dead mm-hmm. bank robbers yeah. not for apprehending not for allowing them to be brought through the not for holding system. on to them to, yeah. Yeah. if you do the, the thing that's right by law we will not pay you yeah not enabling their arrest yeah. that's not good enough and i almost feel like that was the sticking point for the texas rangers not just that hey this is being rampantly abused and people are being killed just for your money. But also you're paying, you're offering to pay people to go around us. Right. To circumvent the law entirely. Yes. Like there can be no justice on a corpse. We can't try the guy if he's dead. 
And I think that shows the streams, right? Right. That were changed. They were changing times. Mm-hmm. Like the same thing we noticed with the reforms that were happening with the um, the original prison system, right, and the original justice system, and we have these um, streams of consciousness through mm-hmm. the time that hey, hey, maybe maybe less mob justice, maybe more let the law yeah be the decider, let the law work, and because law took time, and because the law didn't have a definite outcome that you knew you were gonna like. People didn't want to let it do that. Hence why Marshall Ratliff, the crowd gathered outside the prison because they heard somehow, somehow they heard that he was going to try and plead insanity Mm -hmm. and that he was a a catatonic, paralyzed man now. And they could not fucking believe that shit. And one note was that people were frustrated Mm -hmm. because they weren't getting their justice fast enough. Right. Like, because it had already been like, this is 1929. It had already been two years. How much longer are we going to have to wait before we can lay the spirits of G.E. Bedford and Officer Carmichael to rest? That's right. How long do we have to wait? And it's funny, the um, the amount of time it takes to go through judicial process mm. before you get to the death penalty is not a glitch. That yeah. is the system, the way it is supposed that's, to work. That is you, a feature, not a bug. That's right. You get to exhaust your appeals. Mm-hmm. You get to make your case. You get to make every reasonable attempt, mm-hmm. you know, to preserve your life in person, which is why we are this country and not some others. And if you are taking the law into your own hands, I mean, like, I I spent today watching a lot of Batman. That's just what happened to be. Uh, and so I love a good romanticized vigilante. But you know what Batman did? He captured people and then he gave them to the cops. Mm-hmm. What these vigilantes were doing were, were, were circumventing the legal system entirely. They weren't picking up slack where the cops couldn't do it. Right. And then handing it off to the legal system for justice to be done. They were doing their own justice. The thing that really blew me away about this entire case was not just the like yakety sax bumbling incompetence of these bank robbers that was delightful it's all benny hill Hill. all the time uh was it just that like that was adorable and i really kind of loved that part of the story the part that blew me away was the mobs and like we get we return back to to my the thing that I'm learning about Texas is why would you ever commit a crime here? Why would you have ever throughout the history of the state? Why would you do it now? Oh my God. Because, uh, mm-hmm. well, Texas has been lawless for so long and so thoroughly and creatively uh, lawless that I, I'm starting to learn through the process of doing this podcast that the legal system in Texas is pretty thorough now. Yes. Okay. Because it's had a lot to respond to. It's a well-tested immune system. Okay. Yeah, I I think that's a good description because it has. It's significantly evolved over time. And you get the first first statutes are laid out and they have the first procedures. And then it goes through a major recodification Mm -hmm. and revamp. And then... uh, then you have reforms, right? The U.S. Supreme Court is laying out decisions in the 60s and the 70s right. that are, here are the rights of the defendant. Mm-hmm. So then that increases the the bodies of law for how you deal with just innumerable situations. Mm-hmm. And then we come to today and it, it has, the law has contemplated mm-hmm. the 
it's contemplated a citizen's arrest. It's contemplated your defense of your property. Right. It's your defense of other people mm-hmm. and, you know, how all of those interactions are made. It has, it's, it's had to think about all of these things because all of these things have been done. It, it's, it's had to think about, uh, is a mob allowed to gather outside of a prison and drag a man out into the street and kill him? And were you able to find anything about the grand jury so, on this? No, the grand jury on this, no. But remember, so... There, because um, a grand jury was convened to look into the lynching. So usually, the um, the way those proceedings are secret. And think about it too. In order for you to um, proceed and prosecute those members of the mob, mm-hmm. you would be asking them to identify each other, right? And so I can see without you somehow be, incriminating themselves for also being there, right? You would be in a difficult spot. You would be stonewalled. You know, um, mm-hmm. just as a matter of all of these folks being incentivized. Because nobody would be able to say, yeah, I saw so-and-so there without also saying because I was also Because we there. were all there with our pitchforks. Yeah, and I, was, I wasn't holding a pitchfork. I was just holding a torch. Yeah, or, you know, but I didn't, I wasn't holding the guy. I was, was that? I was, I was just, just there not stopping it. That was another thing, too, because it seemed like it wasn't just whether or not people were um, actively participating in these uh, mobs, but there were also those that clearly just by their inaction and their indifference yeah. to it were condoning it or assisting it Absolutely. You know, through those tacit that's, approvals. That's how evil happens is by people letting it. What is that um, that expression? That, I was that, trying that to quote nugget? it and I didn't. So now I'm All it takes it. for evil to prevail is the indifference of good men there you go yeah yeah that sounds right ah that's poetic as fuck i'm gonna put some heroic music behind that or something i don't know i'll find that song i tried to play earlier (laughs) put a birth control (laughs) ad behind it (laughs) i'm gonna put a birth control ad behind this entire segment playing quietly in the background (laughs) trying to add value that's what i get (laughs) what you get for having a gag Well, all right. <laughs> Thanks for hanging in there, y'all. We do appreciate you. Uh, this one ran a little long because, uh, well, we were having fun. And hopefully it'll tide you over for a bit. Our next episode will be delayed by a week or so so that we can really dig in and sink our teeth into the topic of the next episode. It's gonna be a doozy. So uh, if you enjoy what you hear, please leave us a glowing review or a five-star rating. However, the holiday spirit moves your lovely and generous heart. As always, we are not actually investigators or journalists, so we'll be posting links to our sources on the blog at outlawsandscornedwomen.com. If you have a question or you just want to say hi, you can email us at outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com or find us on all the social medias at OSWPodYall. That's at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L. And I think that's it. So y'all have a good one and we'll see you next time.